121 motherfucking episodes. That's right. This ain't no audition. Okay, this is audition. <laughs> You're absolutely right. It's 121 episodes. I'm pretty excited about it. And I'm excited, of course, once again, because of who we get to talk about and the film we're getting to talk about today. I agree. Before we get to audition, I'm Tyler. This is Fried Squirms. <laughs> I'm Danny. And shit, I mean, you saw what's been going on in my week when you walked in the door. I got Red Dead Redemption this week, Dude, so that, that pretty much fills up my week, so... Anything from your week? Not a whole lot. Been laid back. Just the usual stuff. Doing some editing, hanging out, playing video games, taking in this film more than once. Yeah, that's about it, really, to be honest. I told you off mic that Don Santo and I, <laughs> we went to go see My Neighbor Totoro at the Roxy. It's really good. If you like Miyazaki films, it's definitely worth checking out. So just we been out this weekend. Some Miyazaki, some Ike. Yeah. It's all of it. It's been pretty much Japanese week for me. <laughs> Some Sapporo that we're drinking right now. Yeah, we've got a really good theme today, so figure we carry on with the tradition. But yeah, it's been a pretty low-key week. Like I said, it was a fun weekend so far, so can't complain. Ah, shit, I, I agree. Any news from the week? Yeah. I saw one thing this morning that's probably big for a lot of other people. I thought the films were okay, but I know a lot of people super fucking dig these movies. Danny Boyle's making a third 28 days movie, 28 yeah. weeks, 28 months, whatever it's going to be, 28 years at this point. Like, I don't know. But you all know the fucking zombie franchise. Oh, no doubt. It's huge. Yeah. Looks like there's another one of those coming, and that's all I've seen from this week. Nice. Yeah, just a few things that I ran across. So a scene, I think we've talked about this earlier in the week, just amongst ourselves, was that the Halloween sequel is reportedly filming this fall. And it's slated for an October 2020 release. More specifically around October 16th is what they're looking at. But it looks like some of the female protagonists in the film, like Jamie Lee Curtis, Judy Greer, Andy Matichek, looks like they're all slated to return. I've read some news that they're trying to strike up some deals with David Gordon Green to become back in oh, okay. writing and, of course, directing. So, yeah, it's pretty exciting. Like I know we enjoyed watching the film. That was yeah. pretty entertaining. I thought they did a good job of reconnecting with the original film and then incorporating some new ideas, new Scream Queens, per se. So, yeah. Good way of uh, erasing some of those sequels, even the ones I liked. I don't mind that they're gone from canon now. <laughs> yeah, that's understandable. Well, I mean, when you get the blessing of Carpenter, I mean, yeah. what more do you need? <laughs> All right, so a few other things I ran across that was worth mentioning was the film distributor, Kino Lorber, if you're a fan of any of David Lynch's films, well, it looks like Lost Highway is finally getting a Blu-ray release. And this time around, David Lynch is making sure that it gets a proper restoration. So I like David Lynch a lot. I know we mentioned that several times. This is a really good film. This one came out around the time where he was taking a break from Twin Peaks in between okay. the two seasons, the original ones. So yeah, you kind of get to see what he was working on outside of Twin Peaks at that time. Yeah, so pretty excited. Pretty soon here, I'm going to be for sure watching some Lynch. Nice. Though not what everybody's been telling me to watch forever, which is Twin Peaks. But I'm super excited about the new Dune movie. Yeah. Even though I've never read or finished any of the Dune media, but that's why I'm excited, because it's giving me the perfect excuse to finally like, <laughs> cross this off my list. So I've already started the novel. Nice. As soon as I'm done reading it, I'm going to be watching the David Lynch Dune, then the TV series that they did, all to get ready for the new movie Damn, coming out. Damn, pump it up. Yeah. Nice, dude. Well, I think that'll be a nice little segue into seeing some David Lynch. Yeah, I agree. I'm excited. 
Yeah. I, I'm excited to see Sting and his little fucking Speedo. <laughs> yeah, there's some really good actors in that. You get to see a, a really young Kyle McLaughlin mm-hmm. things look like that. So, yeah, that'd be fun. So, last little bit of news I came across, I think we've mentioned this before, was that Glenn Danzig, he directed a film, and that was entitled Veronica. Well, because of its run recently, like some festivals, people, of course, got their eyes on it. And it's one that is considered so bad it's good. Okay. It's a must-watch because of that. Some people are calling it the horror equivalent of The Room. So if you're familiar with that. <laughs> oh, hi, Glenn. Oh, uh, uh, hi, Glenn. Hi, Danzig. <laughs> so what I read about this was that it's expecting a VOD rollout sometime around Halloween. It stars Alice Haig, Ashley Wisdom, Caden Cross, Natalia Borowski, Rachel Halleck, Scotch Hopkins, and Sean Cannon. I'm kind of curious, man. They've already rolled out a poster for it. It looks pretty good. I'm yeah. not going to lie, but I mean, just, I do not have any hopes for it, but I want to be entertained. Just for the reviews, we might have our new fucking Halloween movie for it's this. It's a possibility, yeah. man. Yeah. I'm down with So Bad It's Good. You know. Yeah, yeah, You yeah. know I'm way down for So Bad It's Good. Uh, so It yeah. just has to actually <laughs> turn that corner, and we'll see if it actually does. I'm not opposed to that. I think it'd be fun. Speaking of The Room, DT, they got The Roxy not too long ago, so... If they're playing it at the Roxy, that'd be pretty dope. But regardless, I think it's still going to be fun to see it. But yeah, that's pretty much the little bit of news I ran across I thought was worth mentioning. You know, you mentioned Danny Boyle and possibly 28, was it months or years later? Yeah, whatever it might be. Yeah. 28 something later. I hope Danzig is taking all of these reviews in stride. Because, I mean, The Room is revered, but it's revered because it's terrible. Totally understandable. Yeah, I think it's funny, too, how knowing like that film's <laughs> its status, yeah, it, it'd be nice to see what Danzig does think about it. Because, yeah, you know, I don't know how sensitive he is. Yeah, yeah, and <laughs> I don't know if he was intentionally shooting for that. Yeah, exactly. So, I don't know, we'll see. Mm, yeah. <laughs> anyway, I suppose with that out of the way, let's jump into the guts and bolts of Takashi Miike's audition. Guts and Bolts. Alright, Guts and Bolts. We're here. Spoiler-free look at what went into audition. Mostly just people. (laughs) Couple warnings. Try to sell you on it a little bit. I'm just, if you're new to the show, I'm just letting you all know. Some of you already fucking know. You're like, I've fucking heard this. I know. But people jump in sometimes, so... Yeah, exactly. Fuck it is you. it is kind of a way of us trying to sell you the idea of watching the film without spoiling anything and give you some credits that some of these people are attached to that you might be familiar with. Let's see. So we'll start with a spoiler-free synopsis, right? Oh, yeah. Ooh, Japanese business. I mean, he's well off. What's his actual... He's like some kind of TV producer or something. Yeah. Something of that anyway, nature. Yeah. He's involved with making film of some sort or TV or something. Anyway decides or ultimately goes along with the idea of holding auditions in his search to remarry gets a little bit more than he bargained for with the girl that he picks that's a very good way of not giving anything away it's in the bag yeah (laughs) i kind of like the tagline which we'll mention of course here in a little while because of what we'll talk about later of course but anyhow all right so good brief synopsis we like to talk about the people who go into making the film, and we've talked about this gentleman several times. This is the fourth time we've got to mention him on the show. Reason being because we are talking about Takashi Miyake. 
And some of those episodes we've done, we actually did our second episode on Visitor Q. A little bit later on, we did the film Imprint from the Masters of Horror series. We've talked about Ichi the Killer. Today being the We need fourth. to find some way to revisit Ichi. I was thinking about yeah. that this weekend because I like that episode, but it was very much an experimental episode. And that movie deserves more time to shine than like the 48 minutes that we was, gave it. What our second our test? Your second fight? test. Your yeah, fright using a format that we never went with again. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. I mean, it was very experimental, but eventually we will give it proper due. But some of the other films, I'm going to mention. So a whole we will bunch. revisit Ichi. Oh, no doubt. We can't help but not. So we've talked about the film Gozu, Blade of the Immortal, Thirteen Assassins, things of that nature. Also, the fact that he's done TV series, he's done children's films, dramas kind of all over the board with genres so the way that i like to describe him is he's kind of like japan's robert rodriguez because if you think of like over here you got robert rodriguez doing things from like the faculty to sin city to the mexican dollars trilogy to the spy kids movies yeah which is all across the boards. However, more accurately, Robert Rodriguez is probably just the Mexican-American Takashi Miike, who <laughs> is far less prolific, considering he Gosh. has over 100 credits to his name. Exactly. So if you want a little bit more in-depth of some of his film credits, you know, we've talked about them on previous episodes. You're more than welcome to revisit those. All right. Along with Takashi, we have writers... Two of them, to be exact. This is based off a novel of the same name, and that gentleman who wrote it is Ru Murakami. And the screenplay was written by Dasuke Tengen, which is somebody we've talked about before. One of the earliest films that actually won the Palme d'Or Film Festival Award was The Eel. He helped write the script for that. He's also helped with September 11th, Never Forget Day, the Japan segment. He also worked on the Masters of Horror series for the Imprint episode, He's also done work on 13 Assassins, and he helped write the script for the movie Red Queen. Our cinematographer is Hideo Yamamoto. He's helped with such films as Blue's Harp, which is another Takashi Miike film. Something I've been wanting to watch that for a long time. It is super hard to get your hands on. He's also helped be the DP on the film Ringu 2. He's also helped with Dead or Alive. We've talked about him on Visitor Q, Ichi the Killer. He's also helped with The Happiness of the Katakuris and the film The Grudge. The editor on this is Yasushi Shimomura. He's helped with Blue's Harp, Visitor Q, Ichi the Killer, Gozu, Izu, which is all those are Takashi Miike films. He's also helped with Tokyo Zombie, which is a pretty decent film. He's helped with the imprint segment, and he's also helped with the Sakayuki Western Django. Oh, I, which is, I, know, is a film love Sakayuki Western Django. <laughs> all right, the music was composed by Koji Indo. He's done work on Visitor Q, Gozu. One Miss Call, Izo, Imprint. He's also worked on Sukiyaki Western Django, 13 Assassins, and Blade of the Immortal. So mostly all Miike films, which is really cool. He likes to work with a lot of these people for several reasons. That was, I have to say, I'm going to interject real quick. That was the downside of my weekend. Getting Red Dead Redemption 2 meant that I had no time to get caught up on Miike films because I actually meant to watch Blade of the Immortal this weekend. Yeah. And... Oh, I need to rewatch 13 Assassins. That was, was a fun film, but I, I need to revisit it as well. I was like half asleep and pretty fucking stoned when I watched yeah. it. It's not like a super long film, but it's one that definitely needs some attention to pay to. So I understand that. All right, I've got uh, some special effects on this. It was done by Yuichi Matsui. They were the special makeup effects artist. And 
they done some work on some really interesting films in the 80s. And one of them, I came close to buying both of these films at one time. But those films are Entrails of a Virgin and Entrails of a Beautiful Woman. They came out like around 86, 87, somewhere around okay. there. He's also helped with the effects on Beautiful Women, Ringu 1 and 2, Ichi the Killer, a film I actually own, need to watch. It's called 2LDK. He's also helped on Gozu, The Grudge, Tokyo Zombie, Imprint, and Kill Bill Volume 1. This film was produced by Satoshi Fukushimi and Akimi Suyama. Production companies were Basara Pictures, Creators Company Connection, and Omega Project. The distributors were American Cinematic. They helped with the 2001 USA theatrical release and Vitagraph. They also helped with the USA theatrical release here in the States, and they helped subtitle the film. The film was released on October 6, 1999. That was in Canada at the Vancouver International Film Festival, and it premiered March 3, 2000 in Japan. Here in the States, it had its premiere June 11, 2000 at the Seattle International Film Festival which is really cool. And the tagline, she always gets a part. Okay. So yeah, that's like kind of that. clever. I like that. All right. So moving on, we do have a really cool cast. And I'm going to lead off with Ru Ishibashi. He was more well-known a long time before he even got into acting because he's a pretty prominent musician in Japan. He's been doing music since the 70s. He actually got his first film. I was doing a little research on this. Uh, he was approached by a gentleman who was looking for that kind of, I guess, like a cast member, somebody who was prominent, who was wanting to kind of venture into film mm-hmm. from music. Caught him at a good time because the band was almost going to break up. But he said he liked the atmosphere. It was a lot different from music. And he's been acting since. So he plays the role of Shigaharu Aoyoma. He was in the film American Yakuza. You might have seen him in the film Suicide Club. He was a part of The Grudge 1 and 2 in the film War. Right, next actress is Aihi Shiana. She plays Asami Yamazaki. Uh, she was known as a fashion model before she even got into acting. So this was actually one of her early roles. Now, she was also in such projects as Sky High. I've actually seen her in Tokyo Gore Police. Highly recommend that film. She's also in Vampire Girl vs. Frankenstein Girl. She's also in the films Outrage, Hell Driver, and a film I'm actually looking forward to because I've seen its predecessor, and that's Kodoku Meatball Machine. Mm. I was like, ah, oh, that's pretty cool. All right, moving on, I have Jun Kunimara. He plays Yasuhisa Yoshikawa. We've actually talked about him before because he was in Ichi the Killer, but he was also in the American film Black Rain. I mean, I've also seen him in Kill Bill, Volumes 1 and 2. He was oh, in okay. Zero. I had to take a look at that real quick, and yeah. you said she was in Sky High. She wasn't in the American Sky High. Oh, this is Japanese, straight up. Yeah, she wasn't in the like <laughs> high school movie with Kurt Russell about oh, kids no. becoming superheroes. <laughs> no. She's in some supernatural thriller that has nothing to do with that. Yeah, no, no, no. I know we've mentioned the Kurt Russell one before, which is funny. <laughs> I was just like, what the fuck? She was in Sky High? Bullshit. <laughs> yeah, just not the one you really get off. That's funny. All right, so June, he was also in Godzilla Final Wars. He was also in the film Why Don't You Play in Hell? And he was also in Shin Godzilla. The next actor I have is Tetsu Sawaki. He played the son of Ruo's character, but uh, this character he plays is Shigihiko Aoyama. He was also in the films Hush, Harmful Insect, in the film Borderline. I've got a few more actors and actresses in here. I've got Miyuki Matsuda. They play Ryoko Aoyama, which is the wife 
of our main actor. She was in the films Rebirth of Mothra Part 3. She was in the films Monster Club, The Reason, and Love and Peace. The next actor I have is Toshi Nagishi. We've actually talked about her. I don't know if we've ever gave her credit, but she was in an episode... <laughs> That uh, Takashi did not mention it just in a second, but she plays the character of Rie. She was like the maid of that family. Right. She was in the the films Gamera Three: Revenge of Iris. She was in the film The Reason. You might have seen her in The Great Yukai War. She was the madam of the house in Imprint. Oh, okay. I was like, oh shit. That's dope. Yeah, it's like she looked kind of familiar. All right, the next actor I have is Shiguru Sake. He plays Toastmaster, and I was like, Toastmaster, who the fuck? He was the guy that meets the main actor or the, the main protagonist going into the restaurant and telling him what happened. It's like a little bit later on in the film. Oh, okay. All right. I had, a, I had a look for him. But anyhow, that's who he is. The reason I think he's really cool is because he's in a series of films. We've actually covered the distributor who brought these films out to the U.S., but he was in Mermaid in a Manhole, the Ginu Pig Japanese series. <laughs> he was also in the films... Go Go Sentai Bukengar, which is a TV series from 06 through 07. He was also part of the movie and The Great Precious. This kind of looks like Power Rangers style <laughs> shit. It's like, that's kind of interesting. All right, the next character I have is Ken Mitsuishi. He plays the director in this film. He was in the films Ocean, Haruki the Goblin. He was also part of The Eel, The Thin Red Line, which I, I don't like war, but I like war movies, ironically enough. It's a pretty decent war film. He's also in the film Hush, Nightmare Detective 2, 13 Assassins, and Shin Godzilla. I've got two more characters, and that rounds out the cast. I have Ren Usugi. He plays Shimada. He was in the Sinjuku Triad Society uh, post-Mega Blues. I can actually add, add in a couple, because I actually yeah. had to look him up for a different trivia-related reason. No He's uh, in a number of Takashi Miike projects. He's in uh, at least the first two Dead or Alive. Yeah, he was in the first two. He's in Full Metal Yakuza. Yep. He's in Zebra Man. But he also gets a shout-out in this movie. He does. It's funny. It is really funny because I they mean, giggle about it. Yeah. The name of the movie's audition, so there is an audition process. I guess this is a mild spoiler, but yeah. you don't hear the entire thing, but you assume that one of the girls auditioning is asked who is her favorite actor. Yeah. And she says Ren Osugi. Yeah. And they sort of they laugh at giggle. <laughs> yeah, because it's like, that's so out of the blue. But it's funny because he has a character in this film. I, and the last actor I have in the film is Renji Ishibashi. He plays the man in the wheelchair. And you literally have to look at his credits because he's been in a ton of shit. So. He's oh, like he's an over. He's in Tetsuo. Yeah, it's like he's. The, that's why I want. He was like the. I think the bum or the homeless yeah, guy. Yeah, he's the homeless guy. Yeah. What the fuck? Exactly. So we've mentioned him. I don't think we mentioned him by who he actually is. So that's kind of funny. We're revisiting him, but yeah, he's got like over three hundred fifty credits to his name. He's a very prominent actor in Japan. A lot uh, of the Lone Wolf and Cub stuff. Yeah, a lot exactly. of Zatoichi stuff. Exactly. So that's why I was like, we need to mention him. And just looking at his roles, it's like, yeah, we have to mention at least some of them. Yeah, that's really funny. Izo. Yeah. Izo yeah. is a really dope-ass film. So, yeah, that pretty much rounds out our cast and crew. I know you gave them a brief synopsis. We gave you a tagline, and we should give you some warnings about this film because there are some needed warnings. Ooh. So, it's kind of hard to warn without giving away too much because I think what's actually shown in this movie 
isn't nearly as bad as a lot of other movies we've I done. Totally agree there. But the atmosphere that Mike creates around it makes it seem a lot more brutal than a lot of them. Yeah. So to keep there's it kind a of mild. torture scene at the end. Yeah. The whole last thirty minutes of this movie is insane, and the last <laughs> twenty minutes of that is fucking brutal. Yeah, it's really ratcheted up. But you're right, it's done in a way where it's not as bad as some of the other films we've covered prior, no doubt. Not um, even close, no, really, no, for no. what's actually shown. But you're right. there's a lot of stuff around that where you might not be seeing it, but you're still going to be feeling it. Yeah. I mean, there's probably some implied things throughout this film, too, with sexuality. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. For sure, like, child abuse, but heavily implied child sexual abuse. Right, right, You don't necessarily see anything. It's all implied. And there's some remnants of those effects. But, yeah, I mean, there's some language, usual stuff. There is some violence. There is some... A little bit of nudity. A little bit of nudity. Some drug use. Involuntary drug use. (laughs) Oh, a little bit of animal violence, too. But it's, you know, you know it's not real. You don't see it. You see the after effect. Exactly. So if you don't like that, it's probably going to tune you out for at least that segment, which is not very long. But anyway, yeah, that's about the extreme end of it, I suppose. It is considered by a lot to be kind of an extreme movie, though. So kind of know that going Going in. Going into, yeah. It did inspire Eli Roth to do Hostel. It's understandable. Which Mike then appears in. Yeah, I was going to say, that's (laughs) some trivia there for you. But yeah, it's, it's funny. It's awesome. So I guess let's get into all the spoilers and how this fucking movie made us squeal. (laughs) How does that make you squeal? So we did it, Danny. We finally got the fuck around to audition. Took us a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. Let's be real about this. So as far as Takashi Miike goes, this is probably his most famous. Yeah, what he's most well known for. It'd be maybe an argument between this and Ichi. But yeah, I would think this one would probably edge out Ichi. I think this one would edge out Ichi. We instead decided to start with Visitor (laughs) Q. I know, right? It's like, if we're going to do it, let's do it a little different. And we did. (laughs) Completely different. I'm glad about that for a couple reasons. Firstly, I'm glad we're covering it in a more loose form format than what we sort of held ourselves to those first few episodes because <laughs> i think that would have took a lot of the fun out of yeah. talking about this movie that's a good point to be honest <laughs> no you're right i mean um, we go through the whole fucking film but i think and this kind of my very first note about this movie um since we're gonna just jump right into it if we would have done this movie then i mean there's something that i guess we don't necessarily have to bring up but rewatching this movie in this cultural environment now, just a year and a half, two years later, something big's happened, which makes this movie seem a little bit sleazier. <laughs> oh, man, that's a good point. Damn, I didn't think about that. Because we're post-Me Too now. Yeah. So these fucking TV producers setting up auditions just to get this guy a date? Yeah, I mean, that's super sketchy, dude. <laughs> I mean, I'm not any expert to break down anything involving that. But that's just something I'm like, a year and a half ago, that wouldn't have entered into the picture. I would have only been thinking about the fact that the entire first half of this movie is kind of playing on like rom-com tropes. It really is. Which is what that's doing, because this was made in that time period, 1999. Yeah. It's absolutely a rom-com setup. The entire, what, first half of this movie is kind of a dark rom-com yeah i mean it's more or less like a melodrama rom-com style 
Yeah. But it's absolutely a rom-com. But now oh, yeah. I'm kind of like, ooh, ooh, that's kind of <laughs> fucked up. And it's yeah. not the most fucked up. It doesn't make me automatically hate these characters, but <laughs> it's still just like, uh, like you guys are what are to like Louis C.K. What Louis C.K. is to fucking Weinstein. Yeah, good point. You're all fucking up, but there's levels to it, and you guys are lucky that you're on the super low end right now, because this could suddenly seem really fucked up. <laughs> you know, that's a good point, because I think the social commentary is, you know, it's it's about how Japan perceives the hierarchies, you know, patriarchy, the dominance in the male society and all that stuff, but you're right, all this shit that's happened since then makes this film a lot more poignant in a lot of ways. Yeah, a lot more poignant. So that leads right into the fact that, like, this is a, a definitely a super layered film, which makes it so that there's no concrete answers, I don't think. Yeah, that's a good um, But one of the things that the Wikipedia page even brings up is that it's possible to consider this film both feminist and misogynistic. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I can see the arguments for both. You really could. Nobody comes out looking good when you really start to examine this movie right i think that's the thing that's fun about the layers of this film and you know this twist that you get about three quarters of the way in the film this huge twist in the way that the movie turns from what you talked about a rom-com something that was almost like a television feel to a horror film in essence so i, I like that shift and because of that there's a lot of dream sequences too you know, there's a lot of these moments you're unsure whether or not this is actually happening. I like the ambiguity as well. well. We'll get there. I kind of have a little bit of a theory about the ambiguity of the ending and how it's both more straightforward than it sort of seems, but it's still definitely interpretive. It's, yeah, I'd say it's, it's layered for sure. But I think truly part of the genius of this movie is how he does do almost a complete genre flip halfway through the movie. Yeah, it's really cool. And it all makes sense. Yeah, it mean, totally makes sense. Given the premise, given the build-up, given the little glimpses that you get, it's not like it's going completely off course. It just makes that shift. And it's not just that it goes from, like, rom-com to horror movie. It goes from, like mainstream, although with a, I would still say with a slight indie edge with the, the way that yeah. they were sort of bringing the melodrama into it, rom-com, into, like, art house horror. Yeah, for sure. Not even, like, normal shit. It's no. like suddenly you're having a really easy time with the first <laughs> half of the movie. Super easy to digest. You have literal, like, laugh-out-loud moments. And then, oof. Tension, dread, you're not comfortable Parts where you're not sure what the fuck is going on. Yeah. And or that's, what is real. That's what makes this film, I think, stand out, too. Because it does kind of throw you off in the beginning. Because you're like, where is the horror in this? But that's the point. It's building up to that point. <laughs> it's creating that atmosphere. It's kind of misguiding you a little bit, too, which is the fun of it. But I think that leads into one of the bigger questions I ended up having that kind of involves the movie in more of a meta way before we dig into the details. Yeah, yeah is that, what the fuck is up with the marketing of this movie? Yeah, that's a good point, too. Almost all the marketing gives away the twist. Yeah, you're right. I, I know what How you mean. much like, more you know, of an impact would it make, <laughs> or would it not have made an impact if she wouldn't have been included in the marketing as much? I know what you're saying with that. But what if you marketed this more of like as a straight rom-com? 
or like a That's, straight indie flick. I think that in one essence, I think that it gives this film, you know, I think maybe about in this like cult status too, is when you discover films like this and then you see an image like that. If I saw an image that made it look like a rom-com, I'm probably more inclined not to watch it, more so than if I see an image of her. But I, I, I know what you're saying, though, because it does give away But you're also already about. inclined to horror movies. Like, yeah, but it, I think If they the would have marketed itself. it as more of, like, a straight, like, emotionally driven indie rom-com, right. then how many more people that don't look at horror would have picked I, I it up? I see what you mean. That's a good point, too. But would that have been a good thing, too? Or would they have all been like, huh. holy fuck. What do we have? <laughs> you know... I think you can make the argument. Because yeah, audiences, sure. like, testing on this, like, they had some pretty strong reactions, I remember yeah. reading, right? From I've heard some different things. I think uh, me and Kay even said that, like, during some of the screenings, people would walk up to them and, like, you know, what do you, what the hell is this? They, I mean, they were physically upset, too, you know, verbally upset. <laughs> I think it's because of that, because of the way that it plays out, you're expecting one thing, and when you do finally get it, it's like... It's more art house. It's more visceral than it is, I don't know, slapstick or you know something a little bit more along those lines. This one has like more of the humanistic. Like this is something that could happen. <laughs> like this is believable. Yeah. You fuck Fucked around up, with the wrong but... people, and this is sometimes this is what happens. All right. So how should we approach this? I mean, the most just... interesting part kind of this of movie is probably the end. Yeah, for but sure. But it's kind of informed by that beginning rom-com part. But I, I could do like some of the build-up too, like giving you some character development. For instance, it opens up with like, oh, goddamn, a gut-wrenching moment. A, you oh, know, yeah. Guy loses his wife, our main character, and his son, who's like has a note or whatever, little gift, like, get well, mom. <laughs> it's like, ooh, ouch. Yeah, and then they give you that little seven years later bit. They have a father and son moment, which... On the surface, it's like, ah, oh, they're, they're bonding. But there's some exchange where I thought was interesting because I think there's a little bit more in the lines themselves. I'll write down a little bit. So the son says to uh, his father, you know, they're kind of joking about catching fish and they're using metaphors. The dad's like, I'm only looking for the big ones. Mm-hmm. And knowing this film, he's looking for certain catches. Yeah. You know? And... uh his son tells him, he says, he prefers real-life girls to imaginary big fish. <laughs> like, oh, that's kind of, it, co- it really comes back to bite in the end. No pun intended. I like all these metaphors used in that. So there's something, okay, if we're bringing up the fishing scene, there's something we're going to have to bring up from the end. Because <laughs> right. I think it all kind of ties in. I think part of the implication here, and kind of later on, too, is that it's kind of easy for his son to pick up chicks. Yeah. Because he was just like, yeah, so I thought this chick was pretty on the bus, so I went and talked to her, and now she's hanging out with me. <laughs> yeah. And then later on, when dude's pain tripping out, <laughs> and part of the sex fantasy involves her turning into that girl that his son brought home, I think part of this movie has to do with his jealousy for his son. For I, his I can son? see that. like, Or at least that's the part youth. of the emotion that he's feeling. That makes sense. I kind of viewed that and, sequence as like some indiscretions, whether they were actually happening or imaginary. Mm-hmm. He was still maybe fantasizing about certain aspects like that. Well, and him and his homeboy were sort of getting down on the youth in the bar, too. Yeah, absolutely. You know, they make mention that they are beautiful, but they're shallow and 
And we've yeah. definitely seen this. Uh, Visitor Q talks about it. I, sure. I was about to say, we've definitely seen in a number of Japanese films. Yeah, good point. Um, this sort of social Battle war stuff, between yeah. the older generation and the younger generation. Yeah, even so, in Tetsuo we talked about. So I yeah, think that's Tetsuo, a, Battle Royale, I think Visitor that's kind Q, of me. Yeah. all touch on that. So I don't Absolutely. know. Yeah, no, I think, I think there is. Whether it's, like you said, whether it's uh, that jealousy or just like, you know, knowing the fact that he's much older, it's not as easy for him. And of course, the youth, it just it comes easy to them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there is like that little bitterness to it, too. I can understand that completely. <laughs> so, okay. Him and Homeboy, his son's like, you got to get back into the game. You got to yeah. get remarried. You're dispirited and shit. His homeboy's like, well, why don't we hold auditions? Like, remember when we did that documentary? Oh, did you write down? I didn't write down, but I it was did. ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, what the fuck was oh, that? Oh, my gosh. All right. I want to see this documentary. <laughs> All right, so the, he's spinning the idea, right? Like, yeah. hey, you remember that time that you did this? It was about a hardy heroine, you know. But the name of the romantic story was called. Well, he said it was a love triangle between a dancer, a patron, and a Down syndrome's boy. <laughs> I was like, holy shit! So what they were trying to do was draw from, from something like that. Mm-hmm. Hold out, of course, auditions for these women, with the premise of them getting this part, not knowing that he was looking to romanticize them this ends up kind of tying in i think in the end her motivations are kind of unclear and up for debate right right. but i think this kind of ties into part of her motivations is that the girl he picked can't win yeah exactly which that's part of the rules they establish from the get-go is that the type of girl that wins isn't good for him because that's not where she's at she needs you know, he said by the second interview or whatever, mm-hmm. yeah, they're already out. There are some really neat little things that are going on. I think one of the bits is like right after they have that conversation, he and Yoshikawa, his partner, he's, he goes in his car, and I think it's raining, and he puts on a tape, and it's playing certain lines from that. It's called Tomorrow's Heroine, and then it goes into like the scene of this little girl listening to it. If you haven't seen this film before, you don't realize that that little girl is... Asami, <laughs> yeah, and she's listening to that, and she even refrains stuff from the end, which is kind of creepy. Which it's super it. creepy, and the thing that makes it more creepy is the the repeated lines she says to him, like they were rehearsed lines, <laughs> like she was playing the part. It's like, oh man, this is super layer. She probably knew about him from a long time ago, maybe not directly, but his work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she was attached to it already. Yeah, so you have that, right? That whole premise that he's wanting to date, get back in the game. He prefers, you know, a little bit younger, preferably trained. He even points out a pianist, a singer, or a dancer. (laughs) Do you remember how he finds her composition? (laughs) Yeah, he spills, what, some coffee or something? Yeah, it's like a coffee stain. When we're going into this segment of it, I've seen sort of what he's looking for as being part of the way to demonize him and sort of be like, well, he's looking for an obedient chick and this and that and stuff. I mean, the fact that he keeps up bringing obedient is a fucked up part, but like (laughs) the fact that he's looking for these other traits, like isn't nearly as fucked up, especially because he's actually giving pretty good reasoning behind why he's looking for like, well, if she's skilled, that means she doesn't need to be dependent on anyone. Yeah. Like that sort of thing. She already has an independence. And having some sort of skill, you know, gives you a fucking confidence in yourself. And this and that. But you're right. There are certain premises that are fucked up, but he has And I'm thinking to myself, this movie can't be made today 
because all this motherfucker has to do is make a Tinder. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Tinder eliminates this movie, and he can be just as picky. That's very true. And nobody's going to give him shit about it. <laughs> Good point. You do it in private at that point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't need this. <laughs> That's funny, dude. Tinder eliminates this fucking movie. <laughs> it really does. The end. Son comes in, hey, Dad, you ever hear of Tinder? <laughs> yeah, no shit, right? He's like, what is that? Left or right? <laughs> you can do that. Anybody can do that. That's funny. Yeah, like I said, he finds all that stuff out, right? To make this story kind of short-winded, is the auditioning part, it's supposed to be funny and humorous, but it's really creepy. <laughs> the first half of it is funny and did make me laugh. When they go into the more sped-up segment, it kind of gets creepy. Yeah. Because the first half of it, you see like actual like chunks and yeah, it's it's just fun and it is absolutely. I laughed a few times. Yeah, because it's silly. But then when they speed up, you see them like having the girls undress and like some kind of shady shit. Exactly. Although once (laughs) again, to our man's credit, like he seems kind of fed up, and it seems like it's his homeboy that's urging that shit. Yeah, I think his yeah his homeboy's getting more of a kick out of it, whereas he's just like, "This is on you, bro. I'm just going along for the ride." I'm just here to see some titties. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right at that. So they go through a good long process where she's like the second to last, right? She's like mm-hmm. 28. She comes in. The thing to note, I think, if you're looking at it symbolically, maybe metaphorically, is the fact that she's always in white. So she almost has this innocence, this virginal aspect of her. You know what I mean? So they're already playing that up, which I think is neat. It does lead to a misconception about her character. So... You get that. He's already had his eyes on her anyway. Mm-hmm. Yada, yada. They go on dates. That's how all that stuff happens. His buddy warns him. Okay, yeah. I was trying to remember what order this came in. I guess they do go on some dates before this next part happened. I just wanted to make sure that I got it in the right order. Did you notice something about the scene where his buddy is warning him? I'm not quite sure. So there's two times in this movie that Mike uses Dutch angles. Okay. He dutches that scene where his buddy's like, dude, like I looked up her references and this and that. And like, and I think this scene is dutched because this is one of the few scenes where you see, I can't think of it. What's his name? Aoyama? Yeah, Aoyama. (laughs) Sort of actively lying to himself. Yeah, Most of the other scenes are pretty mechanical. He's doing something. Like, there's no time for this sort of introspection. But he's having this conversation with his friend about what they've done. And his friend is bringing up all these reasons why this is a really fucking terrible idea. Yeah. And why she seems to be shady as shit. And he's just, like, actively lying to himself. And intentionally sort of tilting his worldview to suit his own needs. Yeah, for sure. And then it's after that you sort of get the sequence of dates where things start going weird, where, like, there's weird cuts and shit. And then there's one other time, like I said, there might be another one, but the only other time that I definitely noticed that he super dutched the camera was when he runs into the Toastmaster. And the Toastmaster gives him a lot of information that lines up with a lot of shit that he had previously heard. And it's when... Like, all that information starts coming together in his mind right there. It tilts his worldview even more, except instead of tilting it back to normal, he's now sort of in this realm of imagining, like, the worst possible outcomes. 
it's literally directly after that that the hallucinations start becoming violent. Yeah, absolutely. However, I do think most of the stuff in the hallucinations in this movie actually are true. I'll get into that in a little bit. But... Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, so during those dates, throughout certain segments of them, I started noticing things. I want to say their first date, you know, she pretty much wears the white throughout. I've already kind of mentioned that. But the first time she wears like this blue, I don't know, like this coat of mm-hmm. some sort or whatnot, shawl, whatever. And then the very next time they go out, she wears something more red. And <laughs> I said, like, you can't help but notice the use of color, of course, too, in this film, especially in that Toastmaster scene where things are red. It's like, yeah, that's the onslaught of terror and things not going so well. Yeah, everything seems to be going easy peasy Japanesey, you know, even though he's getting these warning signs from his buddy and things aren't checking out and you know, we know what the scoop is. But you get the first encounter of the bag. I was yeah. oh my god. That I love that cuz then it it should be known at this point there's something fucky going on. Well, cuz it's not just the bag. No, it's Her the way she's slumped slumped over just staring at the phone. It gets the ring and she has that little menacing smile. Yeah, I was like, ooh, that's good. Oh, fuck, yeah, I wrote down that part's fucking ridiculous, and it's so well done and so creepy. Yeah, so in 7 you have what's in the box. In Audition you have what's in the bag. <laughs> yeah. Ooh. Ooh, what's in the bag is worse, too. It's, it's definitely worse. Because <laughs> there's some finality to what's in the box. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> oh, What's in the bag? What's in the bag? Yeah, there's two lines I like during the first little talk they have about her not checking out, the references, etc. Mm-hmm. Yoshikawa, his partner, tells him, he says, look, this will affect you your entire life. I think that's, I'm not sure if that was when they were on the rooftop and he's tossing like the golf balls. Okay. And the second one is his housekeeper. She tells him men can't maintain without female support. And I was like, ooh, because that's kind of the road he's going down, but you see where that gets him, too. (laughs) I think there's another line right after that scene that's also super important for the last half of the movie. And after that scene, when he has an interaction with his son, his son tells him to watch out because he can be blinded by love. Oh, yeah. He tells him he'd like to meet her first because he generally has good hunches about these things. And the dad doesn't listen to him. You're right. That's a very good line because it does come back to bite him. And I think that ties into how the movie is presented to us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, because it's kind of at this point, when they go away for the weekend and then she ghosts him in the morning is where (laughs) the movie starts getting fucky. Yeah, it does. Because he seeks the help of his buddy and his buddy refuses. He's like, look, man, we don't know this chick. Just forget her, man. You're best forgetting her. Of course, this the whole time he's not listening to his friends. He's not heeding these warnings. He goes to look for her himself. And then, it, you're right, he runs into the ballet studio. That's super fucky. <laughs> you know? I liked it, too. It's super creepy with the guy in the wheelchair. He's like, what the fuck's up with his feet? Do you think he ever actually did meet the guy in the wheelchair? Or do you think that's kind of a hallucination point? I, I thought about that the second time through. After watching it the first time, I didn't think too much about that scene. And then the second time, because of the way things play out at the end... I think he must have met him at least once. I think he must have met him that time. If he did, it's either either one of two things. It's like, you're right, he's either wanting to believe certain things, or he's hallucinating certain things. 
it made me wonder how much the effects of those drugs were making him hallucinate at the end too. Mm-hmm. But then again, how would he know about these characters outside of just what she's telling him? He may have. I don't know. I think at a certain point, though, in the end, she has a very telling line where she says that there's truth in pain. Yeah. And I think once he's in pain, even if things Mm. didn't play out the way they're shown, I think they're still telling you the truth. Yeah, there's some truth in this. Yeah, I see what you're saying. That's a good point, too. I don't think they would use those lines just as throwaways. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. I thought that was a nice way of... That's the thing. I think everything before, all the hallucinations before he's in pain are subject to a lot more scrutiny. Right, right. That makes sense. Because at the point he's still in love and Mm -hmm. still being blinded by these things. Then he goes down, which you've already mentioned, he goes down to that restaurant, the fish place. And he hears this horrific tale about... The owner, which it appears, at the first time I was thinking it was a guy, I was like, no, 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 this is definitely a woman. There was um, some kind of tryst, right? Mm-hmm. Her husband was seeing somebody on the side. There were some indiscretions. It sounded like Asami got a hold of the wife, fucked her up, left some parts of the husband, mm-hmm. <laughs> and took him back as a reward. Right, so the record exec's name was Shibata, mm-hmm. and the owner of the bar was his girlfriend but he started seeing fucking psycho on the side (laughs) yeah yeah and she found out about it right i'm just i'm just i think that's all what you just said i'm just making sure that i'm i have it straight in my head but then so who's shimada that's what i'm thinking is the ballet school is called shimada right but the old guy in the wheelchair is that's her i think that's her stepdad it's supposed to be who that is. Okay. The way she tells the story of... At first, I thought it was the uncle, the way she was telling it. But then she makes mention that she has a stepfather who had severed legs and would abuse her. Right. And I was like, oh, that's who the guy in the wheelchair is. her stepdad. Okay. I thought it, at first it was her uncle, but I think it's her stepdad. So when is Shimada shown? I think he's the guy in the bag. That's... No, that guy is the record exec, and that was oh, Shibata. Okay. okay, that would make sense, too. Okay. Because they were like, yeah, because they, they were saying that the owner of the tavern was dating a guy from the record industry, okay. and that Shibata guy that from the sense. record industry went missing, yeah, and the chick was found hacked to pieces, and so <laughs> she supposedly he was cheating on the owner of the bar with audition chick, yeah, yeah, yeah. and she found out about it. And she took care of old other gal, mm-hmm. chopped her up good. But that's where things really take off from there because the biggest thing that happens, I think, in the film is Rie, the housemaid, she's like leaving for the day, whatever. She's tending to Gangu, the dog. Mm -hmm. But then you notice there's somebody breaking into the home. doesn't show you who it is. We know who it is. And the thing that they focus on was the alcohol. I don't know if it was brandy or whiskey. It was one of the two. Well, first she sees... The picture of the dead wife. Yeah. No, you're right. I mean, there's certain things that she mm-hmm. sees throughout, of course, that she knows that he's not completely in love with her mm-hmm. the way she wants it. And it's not good, man. She drugs him because he comes home. His son leaves him a message about going out, leaving him dinner, yada, yada. And uh, he starts drinking. And, oh, oh. <laughs> things are not good. And that's where I like it, too, because it gets a little surreal, a little trippy at times. Yeah. This is where it's really hard to just explain because it's not entirely sure 
There's only a few things we're sure of. Yeah, for sure. Which is that <laughs> she then starts torturing him. Oh, that's for real. That's totally for real. That's totally for real. The son totally ends up interrupting it and saving the day. Yeah. And kicking her down and breaking her neck. Right. Whether or not she's dead. That's another story. <laughs> that's up for debate. Yeah. And everything he sees in the middle is kind of hard to explain at times. It really is, because it plays with time as well. In situations you've seen before, they're just played out a little differently. Like There's a part where he's starting to see like her abuser and like the dude coming out of the bag, matching up with the story you heard. <laughs> and uh, one scene that, from what I read, this is a little bit of trivia. I don't know how true it is, but I read that Ahi, the one who plays Asami, she's a method actor. So That was real puke. That's what I heard. And I was like, I wonder what they mean by that. And then if you look behind where Ayama, he's like witnessing all that, you can see her make her out in the kitchen puking. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, oh no. And dude laps it up. And then oh. she transforms to the little girl, petting him like a dog. So you have all these interactions where it's like, okay, this is not happening. He's hallucinating these things. And that's where it made me think, too, is like, all right, this is the onset of the drug, so it's fucking with his mind, but he's still feeling the pain, and I think that's the, the really cool thing, too, it's how it, it does that. It's making him face certain demons, his own and hers, per se. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, okay, here's where my theory about this movie comes in, and a theory on a way to read this movie that I think makes it flow. Mm-hmm. I still think there's a couple things that don't quite make sense that pop up in the hallucinations, and... So that's why this is definitely just a theory. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's all that we're sitting around here doing. But I kind of felt like after the second time through this movie that we're seeing this movie from his point of view, but not in the standard way. We're seeing the movie from his point of view in the order that things matter to him. Gotcha. And I think as soon as he... That first Dutch camera tilt where... He's decided to actively lie to himself to go against these things that are being pointed out to him and stuff that he's sort of choosing to almost like zone out when shit gets too real. He's only focusing on these idyllic moments where he's having a fun date with his girl that he's really attracted to that he wants to have a good time with. So you start getting these dates with these sections completely cut out as we're watching the movie. Well, when he starts having those hallucinations later on, we see what's in those cuts. And it's the abuse she went through. Yeah. And these giant red flags for like... Yeah, that makes sense. Totally makes sense. Maybe not why she's not a good person, but she's a damaged person that you, you maybe need to look out for. Yeah. Especially when being taken in conjunction with this shit that his friend has already told him. Right. About none of her stories are lining up. Like... <laughs> And then later on, you get even more information from the Toastmaster, and more things start mattering to him. And as more of these things click in his head, you suddenly get this part towards the end where there's truth in the pain. Yeah. And so here's the truth of everything that he's putting together. He wasn't there for some of it, but then I think sort of Miike is using his directorial authority to sort of still show the truth of what happened. Yeah, that makes sense. That totally makes sense because, uh, of course, he can't be there for all those events. He's being told stories and his mind's filling in the blanks, and then we're, we're witnessing it through the use of photography. Right. <laughs> you know, but you since know, she's the also there, yeah, Mika is able to use film to sort of show, like, hey, this is what happened, and right. he's sort of putting it all together. 
It's interesting. That is very unique. And it's way sort of like tell. it's kind of like this movie is told in the order that it matters yeah. to him, and that makes perfect sense. You're right because he makes a huge mention. I think it's to his son at the beginning of the film about romanticizing things. You know, he's like, you don't understand. At a certain point, you know, it's about romance. So you, that would make sense why he's putting those things in in order. Like typically, when you go through those early stages of dating, everything's like almost in a dreamlike state. Mm-hmm. You know, where it's like you're kind of floating, but then later on, certain other things. You know, you're you get past certain phases. What I'm getting at, you know. I mean, this movie honestly weirdly reminded me of Eternal Sunshine. Yeah. Because it's the same sort of thing. You have them go through that honeymoon period in the beginning, then shit goes bad, and then they don't even want to remember it, and yeah, go to sci-fi lengths things. to get rid of yeah, it. Yeah, and I think that's the clever thing, too. It's the way that it's told. It's not very... I mean, it's things are linear, but they're segments broken apart that you don't fill in the blanks. You know, it's like a puzzle. These other bits start to pop up when they actually matter, should have mattered in the first place. I mean, I think a lot of what you're getting is truth, and some is even revelations that sort of take his own character down a notch yeah. because he definitely fucked his secretary, which completely informs all the scenes she was with him in earlier in the movie. Oh yeah. Had this indiscretion. That's why I was thinking some of it was probably fantasized. Some of it probably really did happen. Like with that, Particular woman, yeah, because yeah, you, I don't his think interactions he, I don't think her. anything actually happened with him and his son's friend. No, 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 no. I think that was like you were saying earlier, like maybe a jealousy thing, like yeah, almost like vicariously through his son, so to speak. Yeah, but he's still fantasizing about Asami that whole time too. Exactly. Right. So he's just putting, or his mind's going to those different places. He's been lonely, <laughs> and then ultimately, like. There's a couple things that don't line up with that reading, I noticed. Like, the part of the hallucination with his wife rejecting her is just weird. Yeah. Which I super dig that scene. And I think that probably deals with some of the different emotional things. But I don't think it deals with these revelations happening as they matter to him. Right, right. right. That the rest of the theory sort of encompasses. Something that threw me off a little bit, too, in that scene... Was, is the son's friend sitting there? Yeah. Or, yeah, exactly. But his son as a child, yeah. so that his son isn't a mm. threat to him. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense, too. Yeah. If he views his son as this child. kid that's not sexually active, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, he's not a threat. Huh. Which, I mean, his son makes was sense a total too. nerd. But <laughs> oh, All about them dinosaurs. <laughs> but that was cool, though. That was cool, though. Yeah, I, was like, I, I like that shit. Most of the scenes with the son, this is kind of getting out of what we were all just getting super into, but his son kind of seemed checked out from the movie. Like almost, I don't know how to describe it, but he kind of seemed disconnected from everything that was going on. Yeah. Unless he was kind of being interacted with. I don't know. No, you're right. He had his own thing going on, which, man, given the Which, once again, if this is all about just what matters to Ayama, then that just might be how he's perceiving it all. His son's yeah. got his own life going on. Like, Yeah, that's a good point, too. That's what makes the storytelling unique, too, in that regard, is that we are viewing it in these segments. <laughs> yeah, I guess to uh, whatever he's either fantasizing about or, you know, what he's skirting away from uh, reality. Yeah. I know one thing we've been <laughs> kind of skirting around, too, is the fact of uh, when it does get to, like, the good bits, you know, the gore and all mm-hmm. that stuff, is I think we made mention of this last week. 
is that if you're not a fan of like particular scenes of gore and all this other stuff, extreme horror, I do think this is one that kind of tiptoes into that, but it's more implied than what you actually Far see. Far more implied. I think what's neat about this movie, though, is there's a lot of cutaways before you see anything, but the one time you think for sure it's going to cut away, <laughs> she starts sawing the foot off. Oh, it's good. <laughs> yeah. It's like the kill list hammer. Yeah, yeah. We're like, like it's about to cut away, right? Oh, God, no, that <laughs> happened. Yeah, splat. He like, his head thudded. I wasn't supposed to see that. <laughs> this case is like, oh, shit, that's his foot. Ooh, that's gruesome. Yeah. Which is good. Man, the makeup effects was really good in this, too. They talked a little bit about when she's inserting the pins or the needles inside of a... Aoyama is Miyake said that those visual effects guys they are very precise in what they do they want to make things look realistic they said they pay attention to detail so um yeah they inserted like these little body molds in those places and she got a kick out of it I mean you can look this trivia up too where she's talking about the kitty 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 kitty. yeah where she was just supposed to whisper it but they're like no let's do it for reals and it does make it creepier and it also makes it more interesting because of the layers of that drug-induced state that he's in, experiencing the pain, and him trying to have these revelations come to the forefront that were already there. He's just ignoring them. Yeah, that was kind of neat. He's just deeper, deeper, you know, literally and more <laughs> metaphorically. And I, Oh, man, yeah. And it just gets so trippy because it's almost like two times at once are going on. Oh, yeah. It's like he's currently in the present, but it's overlapped with this thing that happened in the past. And I think that's a lot of the trippiness. Yeah, I like that a lot too. What do you make of, um, you know, after he's going through that and then his son gets chased, you know, you talked about she got kicked down the stairs. She starts talking to him after his son is making the phone call. Do you have an interpretation of that? You can look at it I a couple different ways. I think it's super fucking poignant and I haven't decided on how yet. <laughs> Someone made me think this. is I already mentioned it was... As she's giving him those lines, she's already I said them previously. To me, it was both very sad and very creepy. Yeah, both. Because it is sad because, you know, she was damaged goods. It wasn't because of who she is, just because of circumstances. And it damaged her. But Yeah, she had a terribly shitty life that yeah. led her to this mental state where pain and love were almost the same thing and... She needed something that nobody could fulfill. Yeah, no one's probably no. ever going to be able to do that to what she wants. So and it's her, not her fault necessarily. No, no, no. It's just what brought her to this state. You mm-hmm. know, it's it's fucked up. But I looked at it, of course, the second time through. I think and a little bit he more. might not. And he's kind of a shitty guy, but that's definitely disproportionate retribution. Right. Absolutely. He's having he the all sins that. of all men foisted upon him. Yeah. He just bears in the crux. I was like, man, I feel like because he's in that state I've mentioned several times now, I feel like you can look at it as a way of him seeing what she was doing the whole time. Like, she was actually playing a part. Mm-hmm. She was playing him. And she had these rehearsed lines because she doesn't interact with people normally. She doesn't have normal interactions. So therefore, all this shit's scripted. <laughs> Everything's scripted. And I think it's not funny, but I think it's interesting it's clever because that's what sold him on her (laughs) Mm -hmm. is that he was auditioning she won the part she says she she became the heroine because she's not the heroine of the film because she's the real heroine (laughs) it's like 
That see that part was a little bit weird though. I think it's in the part where he's pain hallucinating, so I think it's not, I think it's as close to truth as we can get in this movie. Yeah. Even if it didn't play out exactly like that. I kind of think that scene didn't exactly play out like no, that. No. I don't think it could have because it starts with him waking angle. up and wondering if his leg's still there. You know what I mean? Yeah, he's in shock. He's all fucked up on drugs. Mm-hmm. He's experiencing extreme pain. But I think the components of that scene are essentially the truth. Yeah. Where there was a misunderstanding. There was a proposal that was said. He did mean to propose to her, but shit was misunderstood and then he misunderstood her yeah because he mentions that to his friend later on i think there was a misunderstanding, a misunderstanding. yep but the scene in between's cut out we don't know what, he, what yeah. he means by that until later on right absolutely but where was i going with this something led into it no i just i just think it's like the sayings at the end we we're talking about it's just you're discovering those moments that probably did happen it's just the way they're they're playing out now it's it's like <laughs> it is super layered it's it's not just happenstance, you know, per se. Because that line at the end can be interpreted a few ways, especially with her character, because it can be super creepy, talking exactly about kind of what you were saying, how she had this trap laid out for him. Yeah. And she's Jesus. literally saying, like, I was just waiting for you to fall into it. But it's also super sad it because is. we know her background, and she's never had any sort of warmth shown to her. No. And she's saying there, like, I was waiting for your call. I wanted interaction. She still has humanity in her, no matter how fucked up she plays things out. That's all anybody really wants, is just to be embraced, to be loved. She just wanted it extremely. I fucking, I remember what I lost in my poll earlier. Even though I think the flashback to In the Hotel Room is weird, because... I think what she's saying is ultimately the truth, and she brings up that luckiest girl line. Yeah, yeah. She mentions another point where part of this retribution is because he lied to her by auditioning her for the role, but she wasn't picked for the role. Yeah. And it was just so that he could sleep with her. Yeah, they go Just back like and... what all men do. Yeah. We know that she was just last involved with music exec. Yeah, so that so would make sense too. That it's, presumably another casting couch type situation. Yeah, I can see that for sure. She's just going like it's the same old shit. Tell you the lies. However, what we know is that he was never going to pick the girl that won the part. Yeah, no, that wasn't even an option at that point. And by the time that she brings up that was something that was hurtful to her, she has paralyzed him to the point where he can't tell her that. Yeah, too late. Making this also a tragic comedy. It really is. It's a. It is kind absolutely of a, a tragic up comedy. Juliet. <laughs> You're right. That's fucked up. Yeah. He can't tell her that she actually won because she didn't win the part, and that wasn't the game. Right, exactly. It's like that's, but you're right. It's just all that miscommunication, and I think that's why the script is clever. Dysica did a great job of layering this. I mean, of course, the source materials, from what I understand, is this film was very true to the source material. Mm-hmm. They just play with liberties, you know, because of film. Mm-hmm. You can only interpret certain things certain ways. But yeah, it kind of makes me wonder, you know. Like, going back, maybe reading the novel at some point, just, you know, the variances, how true are they? Right. It sounds like they're pretty damn close. Of course, certain things are skewed, some of the storyline, but not much. 
Uh, is there an English translation out? Do you know? I don't know. I didn't look it up, but I was kind of curious after because I wouldn't mind the film. reading that myself. I would view it as like one of these battle royale type things. Like, yeah, it's, it's probably worth probably looking into it. Like, I'm okay with that, man. You know, after watching it way back when, like I do have a history, and I'm sure you do too, with certain films, especially this one. Is watching it way back when? I think that was knowing uh, its notoriety as being like this extreme j-horror you know because mm-hmm. certain j-horror i think oh ghost stories and like me and ghost stories are like yeah you know eh, yeah I'm most okay time that. when somebody says j-horror i think of yeah like grudge ringu yeah like uh, i mean they're all right but they don't not like they don't blow mind or nothing like no, oh my god that's not my that's not no. quite my jam either so i have told the story in the past that the american remake of the grudge was the thing that first made me post a bad review online <laughs> that's so funny but no just knowing like i said the notoriety of this film going into it having that misdirection in the beginning because it's set up like a rom-com right you have these moments of drama of course but when it starts to turn it's like man this is a fucked up film but it's not fucked up because it's like oh, man, it's gory and, you know, it's just schlocky. It's like, no, it's fucked up in the sense that someone done fucked up big time. They messed with Psycho. And uh, Psycho just wanted to be loved. Someone stuck their dick in crazy. Guys, this is why you do not stick your dick in crazy. Yeah, do your research. (laughs) Listen to your fucking friends. Yeah, listen to your hunches. Also, people don't do shit to people to make them end up this crazy. Yeah, exactly. That's the ultimate takeaway. Don't be that fucked up. I think that's... (laughs) Another one of the things that I do like about some of the Japanese cinema we've covered is that there are social commentaries layered within this story. Mm-hmm. You can view it just for the film it is, you know, just like you said, guy stuck his dick and crazy. Or you can look at it from the point of view as like, this is the repercussions, the effects that certain things that you do to people have. It has this rippling effect and it can go a number of different ways. This is just an extreme section of it, not the most extreme. But this is a, an extreme telling of what could go wrong. I like how her character kind of flips the fact that he had that obedience requirement. I brought that up earlier yeah. by making Bagman into her obedient slave. <laughs> yeah. Right. There, and she obviously mirroring. also has a skill at what she does because she's gotten away with it this many times. So she's she sort of flips that requirement good. as well. Yeah. I mean, the skill, training, it, there is the mirroring. You know, you can't help but notice that, but... It's just the way, they, uh, of course, things are interpreted. Not that it's miscommunication. It's just that it's flipped to, to fit a narrative or to fit somebody's agenda. Once again, just pointing out how they flip those requirements really once mean. again just brings up the fact, is like, is this a feminist movie or a misogynistic movie? Yeah. You could say yes to both. I think there's an argument you can make for both. I mean, you, you totally can. Especially in this day and age, post Me Too, where she's basically getting revenge for these casting couch situations. Yep. You're right. She's like the woman who's willing to put herself in those situations to exact revenge mm-hmm. on the guys who do that. So that's the last she's line. She's the avenging spirit. Yeah. And I can see that. There's arguments for and against, of course. The misogynistic thing, yeah. We've already talked about the whole casting couch thing. Yeah. Just using women as objects. And the fact that a guy doing that is basically our hero of the story. Right. Because you're supposed to sympathize with what he's going through. And you have him basically denying to us by not including it in the narrative until far later in the film that he has used women and pushed them aside, such as his secretary in the past. Uh Uh-huh. Exactly. So they're not the people that they appear to be. I think that's 
a little bit of what that's about as well. It's just a, it's a really cool story, man, because of the fact that it is a horror film. It's not another one of the traditional slashers. I think it's really interesting, like the psychoanalytical part, like reading into these characters, like so doing the things why they do them. There's some really cool shit you can play with with this film. It's super layered. Such a good fucking movie. <laughs> I, I, no wonder this is probably his best well-known. Yeah. I didn't think we would be talking about all these themes, per se. You know, it's like, uh, most people just want to talk about the fact that she fucks dude up by sawing his feet off. And yeah, all that shit's harrowing. But there's so much more to it that goes into that. Oh, I do want to say that I love when she throws it at the fucking. That is funny. It is funny because it's like you go from this moment where it's, it's like, almost oh. parodying a fourth wall break too. It, it, I think it really is. Well, I think part of it too is uh, I read, and of course you read this openly, is that Mike said that uh, he was supposed to just cut the film as it was going into some of that stuff, mm-hmm. but apparently the producers like you know own up to it and do it. And so they made a compromise. He he initially wanted to do both feet, I think it was. So he okay. did one instead. So they made a compromise. And I think that was part of it, too, just throwing it at them like, fuck off. There is something, too, after the events of all that, that was almost heartbreaking with the last shot being the little girl oh. wrapping up her fucking ballet shoes. Yeah. And starting with the left foot, which is the one she just cut off of him. Yeah. Oh, Man, that's kind of oh my gosh! I wonder how much this is. I probably not, but it makes me wonder now. I talked about the guinea pig thing earlier, right? Yeah. There was one of their films where I think it is the left side. Is either left or right side? Like it starts on that side always. Mm, okay. <laughs> Don't want to give anything away, but if we ever get to it, I'll I'll mention it again. But that's kind of interesting. There's a pattern to things, or there's rules to it. But then after everything you know, you're just like, Uh, your heart just breaks for her. I know, man. And she, you know, she makes mention that ballet or dance was the only thing that kind of purified her darkness. That's Mm -hmm. all she really wanted to do. It's just tragedy befell her at a young age. It's fucked up. (laughs) Shit, I don't know. I exhausted all my notes on it. Yeah, no, I mean, pretty much what we've talked about. I know we've kind of talked in circles too, but it's a really clever film. Like, the writing is dope. I mean, Mieke, any one of his films that I've ever seen. You He's can, a master. You, Oh my gosh. There's so much shit that goes into it. He can uh, do it all. Yeah. I can't complain, man. It, it's a fun way to visit this film after all these years too. I agree. Uh, I'm excited to do more Miike. Likewise. And there's a lot to choose from. That's what we lot. talked about. Dude has a hundred. I mean, they're not all we've horror. We've done four. We've yeah, got a hundred more four. to go. <laughs> yeah, they're not all horror though. No, no, no. But yeah, it's quite we a few. Can, I mean... Maybe we'll just start our, our side project, Me K podcast. <laughs> oh, we, got, we got a lot of cover. We're fans. That's not happening. Uh, we don't have that kind of time. <laughs> oh my God. But no, I, this was really fun, man. I think this is a, a great way to talk about this film. It's kind of a neat way to go through his catalog without this being the first one that we talked about. Like I said at the beginning, I'm glad we waited because I think earlier in us doing this podcast, we would have missed a lot of this stuff. I think so, too. I and mean, you talked about the fact, too, that this is more prominent because of certain movements that are happening now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think this movie... I mean, you you have to also view it in the time period it was made, but it becomes yeah. more interesting to put these social realizations upon what's actually going on in this yeah. movie upon it. So Yeah, I think that would probably earn this movie even more praise. Not that it needs it, but... I, mean, I think so, too. I yeah. think so, too. I think... 
Don't view uh, it just I'll... as a pure horror because it's not. No. But it's fucking great horror. <laughs> I agree, man. And that's like I said, that's another one of the fun things too, is how I discovered this film and then all these years later getting to talk about it. So yeah, it's just a fun way to revisit it. Fun way to freaking learn so much shit from it too when you have to sit down and talk about a film. It's it makes it fun, man. I enjoy it. Well, I think we've decided on next week. Ooh, there's a good reason too. Midsummer is coming up. Right around the corner. We've been delving into a lot of folk horror lately anyway. So we're finishing off the Unholy Trinity. Ooh, what is that, Tyler? We're going to be getting into Blood on Satan's Claw. Ooh. <laughs> Satan. Yes, Satan. man. Satan. 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 Yeah, we've talked about the fact that we like folk horror. We like Satan movies. So this is a really fun one. It's one I have seen. I don't know if you've seen it. I have not. I am super excited. I know you and Donnie both like it. It's really good. So that's going to be next week. So please hit subscribe however you're listening to us right now. We are available wherever you listen to your podcasts. So I don't know why you would be listening on something you don't like to listen on. But if that's the case, go and fucking switch. We're there. You can always check us out over on our website, www.friedsquirms.com. There's links to listen up at the top. The latest episode is always streaming down at the bottom, our complete archives through the middle, and portals to all of our online residencies. <laughs> the Facebook, the Twitter, the Instagram, and you can also contact us through the website or emailing us, squirmcast at gmail.com, and we would greatly, greatly appreciate it wherever you're listening to us. If there's an option to rate and review, to do that and especially over on like apple Podcasts, because they are still the largest provider and that sort of just helps us get the word out so exactly get us in that algorithm because uh we enjoy doing this mm-hmm. so once again if you have film recommendations if there's things that we can improve upon if you just want to give us a shout out and if you want to talk to us yeah we'll talk to you yeah we're hey. friendly enough guys we also like to review films, of course, from people who might need some help getting the word out. So if you're a filmmaker or in the industry, have a film, need some eyes, let us know. And we love you? Of course we do. Okay, cool. Snoochie-boochies. <laughs> I think that's it for me. So, I'm Tyler. I'm Danny. Fries Grooms. Out. Oh.